Hello and welcome to How to Grow a CMO, the podcast that helps you become a better marketing leader. I'm your host, Ali Hussain, and this week I sat down with Brian Rowley, VP of Marketing at Panasonic Connect North America. In this episode, you'll hear about the importance of feeling comfortable with uncomfortable conversations, the rule of thirds in the modern B2B customer journey, the value of diverse thinking, and how to keep a plane full of your C-suite colleagues happy. From the CMO crowd, this is How to Grow a CMO. Hello and welcome to How to Grow a CMO, the podcast that helps you become a better marketing leader. On the show, we hear stories and secrets from leading CMOs and discuss the values, skills, and strategies they use to drive growth for the biggest B2B brands in the world. How to Grow a CMO is part of the CMO Crowd, the peer-led community for senior marketing leaders. You can stay up to date with all our episodes, events, and exclusive member-only content at cmocrowd.com. My guest today is Brian Rowley. Brian is VP of Marketing at Panasonic Connect, and he's also a speaker, podcast host, and creative storyteller. Brian, welcome to How to Grow a CMO. Thanks, Ali. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? Everything is good. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Could you start by telling me the story of how you got into marketing? Yeah, it's an interesting story. Um, I actually started my career in sales, to be honest with you. Um, and as I progressed through um, my career pathing, um, I really loved the ability to be able to tell stories. And um, I loved the creative aspect of marketing as well. But I also felt that having an understanding of the sales side, because a lot of times there's a lot of contention that takes place between sales and marketing. I thought it was important to actually also understand both sides of that equation. But after doing um, several years in sales, I did have an opportunity with Verizon Wireless to move over to a marketing role. And I was specifically focusing on um, our connected home, connected auto, and wearable technologies, and, and how do we bring those to market. Uh, so it's been sort of an interesting path, uh, which led me, obviously, to Panasonic, Panasonic Connect. But it, it all started um, really from a sales background and then just the, the desire and want uh, to actually be a, a storyteller and get creative with what you can do with either a product or a brand. So you mentioned now that you obviously uh, you work for Panasonic Connect. Everyone will recognize the Panasonic name from its consumer hardware heritage. Um, I'd imagine everybody at some point has owned a Panasonic TV. Um, but Panasonic has grown far beyond that. And now, uh, almost like an iceberg, there's a whole lot more to Panasonic uh, than people might see. Um, so could you take us a little deeper into the story of Panasonic and where it is now? Sure. So Panasonic is uh, a brand that's over 100 years old and, and to your point, started out on the consumer electronics side, TVs, appliances, um, grooming devices, personal health care, those types of things, microwave ovens. That's a lot of the technology that people are. I can't tell you how many times when I tell people that I work for Panasonic, it's, you know, I had a TV or my dad used one of the razors that Panasonic produced. Um, and that's still an element of our business, not necessarily here in the U.S., um, although parts of it, our consumer um, division does exist in the, in the U.S., 
but the TV section uh, we stepped away from years ago, um, although very prevalent still in Japan, obviously a leading brand um, being a Japanese company, obviously a well-respected brand um, across the globe. But the division that I work for is actually Panasonic Connect, and there are multiple divisions that make up the, the brand of Panasonic. And Panasonic Connect is actually consists of uh, a variety of different business units, ranging from our mobile computing technologies, which are you know our laptops, handhelds, and tablet devices, to our immersive entertainment portfolio, which covers projection um, and visual displays, as well as you know. We do uh, work around smart factories and solutions supporting efficiencies in warehousing and manufacturing and all of that. And then we also have large-scale equipment that covers our process automation team, um, which is really focused on that large factory machinery that, that makes chipsets that um, provide the technology that sits in a lot of the electronics that you and I have today. So it's a big breadth in terms of the product scope that we have. But m- most importantly, I think the biggest piece and takeaway from that is um, the business probably about eight or nine years ago transitioned from more of a consumer-centric business to a B2B business. So most of the industries that we serve today are, in fact, um, our uh, business communities. And, and it ranges, as I said, across... You you know, uh, themed entertainment to uh, manufacturing, warehousing. Um, we support uh, public safety, enterprise, um, government accounts. Um, uh, our frontline um, uses some of our technology. Um, so it, it really is a big breadth of products across multiple industries, but very much B2B focused. So w- what is the role of marketing then in Panasonic Connects? And, and what's your role within that function? So for me, um, I head up the team uh, that um, is responsible for marketing across the divisions that I mentioned. So it, we call it our mobility team, our professional video, uh, professional imaging and visual systems business, um, our enterprise process innovation uh, uh, business unit, as well as our process automation business unit. So our responsibility is everything from go to market um, to how do we engage our customers customers, um, whether that's through storytelling, through content, through lead generation, um, through our appearance, we do um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 trade shows a year um, across the divisions. So we're very active out there telling our story and making sure. But really, the role of the marketing team is just that. It's to tell the story. It's to understand our customers' pain points and to make sure that the information that we provide to those customers solves for a lot of those questions. You and I both know marketing has changed dramatically over the course of time. It's no longer about our abilities to be able to tell necessarily the story we want to tell. It's for us to be able to show up in the places that people are looking for us as they're gathering and garnering information about their next product selection or decision that they're trying to make uh, from any company that's out there. So it really has shifted, but the, the real role, it is, it's, it's telling the story. What is the story of Panasonic Connect? I agree. I, I think there's something interesting there that you picked up on uh, the almost shift in the balance of power between kind of marketing as a broadcast function for the business, uh, given the increasing number of suppliers, increasing consumer number of choices uh, a client or customer might have, um, and then marketing having to 
to listen, as you said, uh, much better to the customer to turn up where they might already be um, versus assuming that if you have a megaphone loud enough, uh, people are going to end up listening to you wherever they might be. Yeah, it's really an interesting concept because we actually, you know, are a company that was very heavily focused and still are in sort of these large gatherings and um, and and these trade show type events. And it's an important element to it, but it's only one element. And I think one of the things that we found as demographics change and the buying communities and those who are making the buying decisions have changed as marketers, we really need to understand where do those new generational shifts actually look for information. Um, trade shows cover a certain demographic, um, but then there's things like this, podcasts, um, where others navigate to. Uh, there's also, obviously, web. Your website is an incredibly important piece um, as you're trying to tell your story because most individuals do their research prior to picking up the phone and calling you for information. They're looking to try to find that themselves. So it's really understanding and listening and listening in a bunch of different ways. I will tell you that I have conversations all the time where people think that, you know, the way to listen is necessarily to be in front of a customer. But you know, the reality of that is a customer is having many conversations with us. Some are face-to-face, some are through the tools that we provide to them. So understanding how long they stay on a website, what is the content that they're engaging with, how long are they engaging with that content, are actually all conversations that they're actually having with us indirectly, but they're a conversation and their behavior reflects how they feel about the information that we're putting out there. I don't know if you've seen recently, there was some McKinsey research that came out around the changing buyer journey um, and the increasing influence of self-serve and, and research prior to, to engaging further down the, a, a further along a conversation. Um, and they came up with a useful rule of thirds so at each stage you kind of spend, you know, customers might spend a third of the time uh, on doing kind of their own research, a third of the time communicating kind of non-face-to-face and a third of the time communicating face-to-face with, with vendors and partners. And I think it's a really interesting piece of research. It does show, uh, reflect a trend that is happening. What, there's a couple of questions I have around it. Um, which I think might vary from one personal experience to another, which is what it doesn't show is the quality of that time spent. It shows, you know, the amount of time that people are spending on these different channels, these different ways of interacting with businesses. Um, but I feel like there's still a gap there to understand actually what's, what is the quality, what is the actual impact of that time spent. I think the point that McKenzie raises around the rule of thirds is a, is a really important one that they point out because At the end of the day, um, there are multiple individuals within an organization, not just marketing, um, who are responsible for that messaging um, and providing the correct story to those customers. You've got sales and product who are responsible for that face-to-face element. You also have the indirect experience, which is happening through the web, which you know, you garner information from your sales and product teams as well as industry and balance that around customer pain points and making sure that you're solving for for a lot of that. So I think it's actually an important statistic that they point out. And it's also an important understanding for those of us that are actually on the brand side telling that brand story that it's not one-sided. It's not one group who's responsible for it. It is multiple organizations within a business that have that responsibility to work closely together to make sure that the story is relevant, but also to make sure that it's consistent. 
and that there isn't different stories coming depending upon which group is the group that's telling the story. Absolutely. That, that speaks a little to um, the idea of product-led growth as well, which is something I'm fascinated by. Um, and as we see that creeping in, you know, I work with a lot of SaaS companies we work with, um, and that idea of, of using different levers to help grow a product's user base and revenue outside of the typical sales and marketing channels, I think is, is fascinating to me and increasingly important to our clients. And, and I'm wondering, actually, speaking of, of growth levers, when you think about the future of Panasonic Connect over the next few years, what are your objectives and what are the sorts of levers you'll be looking to pull to reach them? Yeah, you know, as the pandemic hit, um, we really had, um, although we were heading down a, di- a different direction, uh, we're a very hardware-centric company. Let me start by saying that, right? We've been known for the hardware that we produce. Uh, it's quality. Um, it has brand reputation. It's been around for a long time. Um, and quite honestly, we lead industries um, in, in almost everything that we do. And so, um, but we also realized that, you know, as you start to see um, more and more competitors in that space, you have to, as a business um, and being an industry leader, have to look at where can you add additional value to the customer experience and their buying journey. And so that's one of the things that we're really heavily focused on uh, in regards to the strategy that we have for Panasonic Connect. And that is, what is the the ways in which we can help our customers grow and be more of a point for them in more areas of, of the work that they're trying to do? And I say that because I hate the word solutions, but we are very much focused on the solution approach. And the reason I hate the word solutions is because I think it's one of those lines that people use a lot in the market, and I don't know that anyone really defines that. But for us, it's it's the combination of actually making connections, connections not only to our hardware, but we also have a vast um, group of uh, an ecosystem of partners who actually step in and help fill the gaps for areas that perhaps we can't. So we believe that by developing Developing and continuing to evolve the ecosystem of partners where we come together, people who have similar beliefs and products and understandings of business industries can come together and provide a consolidated solution to a customer is really where the value is going to sit. At the end of the day, no business can be everything to everybody. So you have to identify where are your strengths, what are you prioritizing, and then work and help develop companies that you can work with um, who can actually assist and complement the story that you tell and work together to provide that cohesive solution to an end user. I hope that gets you to where we're, where we're headed. I know it's sort of a long way around sort of the answer, but it, 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 is, it is a big shift for us. It's been a, a very big shift for us internally as well as externally and the way in which we tell our story. Our story has evolved from just it being a, a hardware-centric organization to really understanding all the touch points that a customer is looking for us to solve for and trying to come to the table with as many answers to that through either ourselves or our partner ecosystem to make um, that a, a positive experience for them. Thank you. That, that does illuminate the challenge. Um, and it's a challenge I think we see 
a lot of businesses facing as well now. I mean, I remember working with a, a, another global organization famous for its hardware, um, not a competitor of Panasonic, I might add. Um, and the CEO recognized that they needed to grow revenue streams through the solutions, software services, capabilities part of the business. Um, they brought us in to help with that. And we, we found some quite funny things, actually, that there was obviously that tension in how we could position the brand, you know, with this fantastic name recognition that would open many and many a door and start many a conversation, but it would open a lot of the wrong doors and start many of the wrong conversations. Um, so there was that tension between how we could use the brand um, as a, a strength. Um, and it was so strong in one context, but actually something of a weakness in this other context. Um, are there particular ways that you're looking to shape the Panasonic Connect brand going forward and how, and how, how you're taking that to market? Yeah, the brand has always and will continue to be always very customer centric. Um, we, we, the importance behind understanding our customers, having those customers. I mean, there are products that we have today that we can actually pinpoint functionality on a device and tie that back to a specific customer who actually asked for that. And then we continued that through the product line. So I don't think on that side, we're looking to make any shifts. Our goal is to continue to listen to our customers to make sure that we understand what they're asking for and do our best to be able to provide them answers to what they're looking for in products, services, um, and software. That, that's really the ultimate goal of what we're, we're trying to accomplish. Much easier said than done, obviously. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, moving away from being so customer-centric and customer-focused is, is not, you know, that is not what we're looking. We definitely see the value in that and we'll continue to pursue that because it's been very, it's allowed us to do many of the things that we can do today. We have some amazing customers who are incredibly loyal and we thank them for their business every day. It's, it's an incredible uh, story and helps tell our story. Uh, I love hearing that as well. Are there particular marketing motions or things that you've set up to make sure that you're staying close to the customer? Yeah, it's um, there's many many points. Um, there's obviously a lot of of software um, and and things that we do to understand behaviors, um, understand how customers are approaching and 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 what they're looking for. Our teams spend time in front of the customer. Our marketing teams spend time in front of a customer. Uh, we're constantly evaluating uh, what's happening in an industry. But, you know, I don't think you can tell the marketing story without understanding the industry that you're telling that story for. So for me, a big part of what we're trying to accomplish is making sure that we we don't have people who are just focused on impressions in marketing, click-through rates, and you know, time on site and all of those things, but really understand what are the pain points that a customer's experience in their space and, and taking that into consideration as they're crafting the story that they're telling. The other thing I will tell you that we do is um, we do spend a lot of time um, in the conversation around cross-pollination. And really taking unlike categories of, of ex examples. And I'll, and I'll give you an example. So, you know, one of the things that we have done, and this is actually through um, another gentleman who I work with by the name of John Palumbo, who has, a, a, who has helped us with our internal podcasting. Uh, he has a company by the name of Big Head Networks, and they focus on helping companies cross collaborate across teams. So, 
as an example, um, for our marketing teams, the importance of storytelling. We actually had um, a comic book writer come in and speak to the team in regards to how to tell a story because nobody tells a story better than a comic book writer. Now, one initially would think, why would you have a comic book writer come in? That that doesn't make any sense. Um, but no one tells that story better than, than those individuals. We also had improv coaches come in to actually help the teams collaborate more closely together, understand when is an appropriate time for you to be in the spotlight and when is it okay for you to step back. So we're constantly looking at ways to evolve not only the marketing organization, but just the way people think about the business that they have responsibility for. How to Grow a CMO is a CMO crowd podcast brought to you by The Marketing Practice, a global integrated B2B marketing agency that brings together all the skills you need in one place to design and run marketing programs. You can access all our videos, reports, and a peer-led community designed to help you keep on learning at cmocrowd.com. How do you how do you see the way in which brand and demand work together? Do you see them as two very distinct elements, or do you see them as as two parts of the same thing? Yeah, I think as a as a marketing team, I mean, I look at it and say, you know, our goal as a marketing team is actually to, you know, threefold really to protect the brand, to promote the brand, and to help our teams show the value of the brand. So when you start to look at what that does, um, I, I think that you have to be focused on the conversation in those elements. And so I do think that there's the demand element to it. But uh, to the point that I had raised a little earlier, I don't necessarily think that always the demand generates that message. So you have to make sure that first and foremost, you are standing behind who the company is and you're authentic in who you are. And I don't think that authenticity um, shifts with demand. I, I think that you have to maintain who you are. And I think that's a really important element that I think many companies get lost in. You can't waffle on who you are. You have to know who you are and you have to execute against that. And, and hopefully as you're telling that story, that that value that you bring resonates with the customers that you're trying to target and you understand their industries enough. But I, I don't think that can shift. I think the authenticity behind that is incredibly important for you to be successful. Absolutely. And, and in your work, discovering that or exploring that that core, as you refer, you refer to, that authenticity, who else have you have you brought on that journey or who else was key in starting to articulate that to the business well i i think everybody has to understand that i think everyone has to understand that again it goes back to you can't have one group out there telling the story differently than someone else so when we do product launches when we um are out there launching new campaigns we we go to painful stakes to be able to make sure everybody understands what is the message and how is that to be delivered to the market? Um, we have very honest conversations around um, our conversations with media, as an example. We want to make sure that we don't confuse markets. That's not the goal of what we're trying to do. We definitely want to make sure that people understand who we are. And if we can't explain that and explain that clearly, there's no way a customer is going to be able to figure that out. So that is the responsibility of everybody within the organization 
organization, no matter what role you have, if you have a touch point with the customer or an industry, you have a responsibility to understand what is our message and make sure that that is consistent um, in your talk track when you're having those conversations. I was wondering if now uh, we could talk a little bit more around uh, your internal team um, and, and how you work with them. So r- roughly how many people are in your team and how do you structure it? There's about 32 that support the business um, in across those industries. Uh, and, you know, the way that we're structured is we do have a vertical team. So we have a team who is very much focused on the content that we create, understanding and how we represent ourselves in vertical events. So they handle all of our events. They handle all of the digital media that you'll see that's in market. And then I have an optimization team who focuses on social, so focuses on our web, a lot of our analytics, as well as um, our lead gen and nurture uh, that we work on. But the two work very closely together um, because obviously if you're developing content on a vertical side, you need to take into consideration how does that flow across all of our social channels? How does it flow across the web? Is it is it the appropriate information for us to be sharing in those. So the teams work very, very closely together uh, in making sure that, you know, we are um, all sort of marching to that same beat um, in the work that we're doing and, and truly understand what, what the, you know, what left-hand understanding, what the right-hand is doing in that equation. Because there's so many moving parts to it. And I think as you look at the the value of marketing and the shift in, in the approach that you take, not only from a tactic perspective, but just in general, having these conversations, it's it's a it's a huge huge responsibility. So for one person to have all of those skill sets is probably a challenge. So what we try to do is work the teams to have them focus on the areas where you know they are dominant and really have a good understanding of that, and then allow the other teams to sort of help and support, and then vice versa, depending upon what the tactic is. Very good. That that makes a lot of sense. And one of the, as well as that alignment and getting people working together and collaborating, one of the things we've touched on in our previous conversation was the import the importance of diverse thinking um, and the value of bringing different perspectives. And I know that's something you strongly believe in. It's something I strongly believe in too. How do you make sure to include diverse perspectives in your team and also in the work that you do? Yeah, it's really about just being aware and understanding whose voice isn't present at the table. That is the biggest piece. So for us, diversity of thought is huge in everything that we do. And it, 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 it's been something that's really interesting because people talk about DEI initiatives considerably. And, and oftentimes, you know, they think of them from the perspective of gender and race. Um, and it, it's so much bigger than that. And the value really is, is that diversity of thought, making sure that people with different backgrounds, um, people in different age groups, people um, with different experiences all have an opportunity at some point to share their perspectives. And I won't tell you that doesn't come without challenges, but it is an important element for us to be aware of. And it, not only in the marketing organization, but within Panasonic Connect as a whole, right up 
to our president of the organization, it is a focal point. He sits down and has conversations with every individual within our company uh, and, and tries to do that on an annual basis and really does this and, and you know pulls groups together, asks specific questions about the business to be able to look at different perspectives and how we can solve some of the challenges that we're facing. And I can tell you that it's incredibly helpful uh, when you get some of those perspectives. You don't always agree with all of them. But I think we've gotten to a point, um, not only professionally, but personally, where we tend to gravitate towards people who think like us. And that's where we tend to spend a lot of our time and, and focus a lot of our energies. And the reality is that is in order for us to grow as individuals, I don't think it's about surrounding yourselves with people who are like you. I think it's about surrounding yourselves with people who are not like you, because there's always an opportunity to learn there, whether they're like you or they think like you, um, I think there's so much more value in, in those that have a different and can provide additional perspective to a conversation. I agree. There's, um, there's an author that I'm a big fan of called Matthew Said. He's not specifically a marketing author, um, but writes fascinating nonfiction, often touching on important elements of business. And he paints the picture of the problem space being a box on a page and everybody who might think in the same way, you know, without that diversity of perspective, essentially congregating a very small part of that box to see where the solution might be, whereas bringing in those more diverse perspectives allows you to explore more of the box um, and, and the benefits that that brings. And, and, you know, it's interesting, Ali, because with that, right, there, there is sort of this element that comes along with that where, you know, there's some passionate conversations that happen because there are people that, you know, have a feeling or um, a belief in, in one direction or another. But I think those difficult conversations are okay to have as long as they're done in a respectful way. And and I think that's the piece that is is challenging. We haven't We've moved to a time where I don't think we're as good at having those difficult conversations without that becoming very heated. And I think what we need to be focused on is what can I learn from that discussion versus you know, you know, posturing yourselves to, you know, I'm right, you're wrong. It's not about that. It's, it's really about what can I learn from this? And is there a different perspective that I hadn't thought of? And being open to that. And that is challenging. It's challenging for people to step up and be willing to have those conversations. But it is something that we encourage. And I think it's incredibly valuable for an organization to grow. That's great to hear, Brian, and, and something I wholeheartedly concur with. Um, I think there's a there's a concept that I'm a huge fan of and I bore a lot of people with uh, called psychological safety. Um, and sometimes that's conflated with the idea of, of well, two, there are two, two ways that the idea of this can go slightly, slightly off course. So the idea at its core is that you can speak up and speak candidly um, and try things without fear of retribution or blame. You know, take, take personal risks at work without fear of retribution or blame. Um, but sometimes that veers off into everybody being really nice to each other and not having those difficult conversations and handling those conflicts that you've just talked about there. Or on the other side of it, perhaps just, just whinging and saying, just only ever pointing out that stuff's wrong rather than ever actually doing anything about it or, or attempting to, to address some of those issues. Um, so it's, it's great to hear that that's, that's something that you hold very dear as well. I'll add one point to that. You know, we have been doing a lot of DEI uh, conversations internally. And there was a woman that we engaged with, a woman by the name of Cheryl Harris. And she was, um, she focuses very heavily on DEI. 
And uh, her comment to us was, if the conversations are not uncomfortable, then you're not having the right conversations. And it's if you think about that, it's really, do you surround your people that, with people who say yes to you? Or do you surround yourself with people who are willing to challenge you to make sure that you're at the top of your game? And I think as a leader in a business, I would rather have the person who's going to challenge me, uh, again, respectfully, but those uncomfortable conversations are where things happen. The yes conversations are just a waste of time. Uh, they're just not productive. And they don't move a business forward. I agree. Yeah, yes, conversations can happen over email. Uh, so I don't think there's any need for them to be to be done face to face. Good. Okay. And and one of the one of the most uh, pressing issues I think on many marketing leaders' to do list at the moment are around attracting and retaining top talent. So, do you have any? advice from what you've learned over the years about how to attract and keep top talent in your team? I think there's a couple of different pieces to that. I think there's a level, uh, especially in today's environment, of uh, being an empathetic leader, understanding um, and not taking for granted the things that individuals are looking for. I am also a huge believer in work-life balance. Uh, I know a lot of people say it. I truly mean it. Um, I, I, I don't think that any organization is uh, focuses one individual, and I think people need to understand that in order for them to be of value to an organization, they need to disconnect, step away, and recharge. And so work-life balance would be uh, the other piece that I would say is really, really important. And then I think really, you know, some of it is very basic, but I think it's just really listening to employees as much as you would to your customers. I say all the time, you know, in order for you to have happy customers, you have to have happy employees. It's impossible uh, for you to to achieve a positive customer experience if the employee experience is, is not amazing. Um, it just doesn't work. So I, I think those are some key elements for me that have worked as a leader. Um, I believe in empowering people to do their jobs, um, allowing them to do that, allowing them to take risks. Um, and then I think, you know, lastly, I would say that, um, Defining success um, in the projects that you work on, because success isn't always a positive number. Um, you can learn, and a lot of people say this, but you really can learn a lot from the things that weren't as successful as you were hoping they would be. Um, but in some cases, that actually turns out to be more successful. So I think the definition of success as you go into products and being clearly able to identify that with your team is an important element. There's a couple of things you mentioned there I'd love to pick up on. First of all, the point around happy employees, and then secondly, the point around work-life balance. So if we, we take the first point around being a happy employee, so obviously you are an employee of, of Panasonic Connect. Um, you have experience working in businesses where the C-suites could probably fill an entire jumbo jet, um, a lot of people to manage upwards and sideways with. Do you have any tips around how you have successfully managed upwards and sideways in these giant businesses that you've worked with? I would say um, as, you, as you manage up, I think it's always to, to understand your audience um, and to make sure that you're always ahead of what potentially 
they could be asking you. And I don't think that's any different uh, managing up than it is managing customers, right? You always have to be one step ahead. You always have to be thinking of what could the outcome be versus having the outcome presented to you. Because when it's presented to you, you're in a reactionary mode and you haven't given it a lot of thought. And and that, as a result of that, can be a a bigger problem. The other piece that I would say is, um, you know, I'm always one that, that... comes with a lot of data to support what I'm asking for. Um, I, I don't tend to operate um, in, in a fashion of hearsay. I, I don't think anybody who does that at a C-level is, uh, is doing the job uh, that they should be doing. I think you have to balance that with enough data. And, and it's not always sales and it's not always revenue. It's really an understanding and, and having those honest conversations. And, and for me, a big part of it is I am also, um, <laughs> my team will tell you, others that I work with will tell you that I'm brutally honest. Um, I don't have a lot of time for those conversations that are for conversations before you get to the point that you're trying to make. Just make the point. Um, I don't think it's it necessarily has to be disrespectful, but if something doesn't work, say it doesn't work and move on. We spend so much trying, trying to comfort one another in delivering news that just deliver the news. It's just the facts. Uh, it's not personal. Um, but once the facts are there, you can make decisions. And, and, and not sharing the exact facts and being afraid of the consequences of that is just non-productive time. Do you find like you have to, to modulate that at all, working in different businesses and different cultures? Or have you found that actually you can stick to that as a principle and, and people tend to work pretty well with it? No, it, honestly, it was a very big adjustment for me coming from um, my prior employer to Panasonic, so being U.S.-based company versus a Japanese culture, um, because um, you know where I was prior to Panasonic, the focus was very much let's get in market, let's get it done, and you know so get in the market early, um, understand where you're at, and get out fast if you need to. Um, our the Japanese culture is a little bit different than that, right? So it's more time evaluating, understanding the impacts. We're not typically the first ones into market. So imagine that coming in from get in the market, evaluate and get out to, you know, there's a tremendous. So that was more of an adjustment for me than it was for, for the team because you quickly have to understand, again, your audience and you can't necessarily go at it the same way. So yes, it does need to be modulated. Um, and but it depends on the conversation too. I think I, I think the factual element does not need to be. Um, people typically don't want to hear bad news, but the reality is, is sometimes there's bad news. And I think the f- sooner you get that out, the faster you can progress into what the corrective action might be that's needed in order to fix a situation. Lovely. Thank you, Brian. Um, so just the, the second point that I wanted to pick up on that was just work-life balance. Do you have any? particular tips, uh, you know, around how you balance work with other things in your life? I do. Um, I, I think for me, um, I really do make a conscious effort to step away when I know I've had too much. And that doesn't necessarily mean wait until five o'clock. There are days where one o'clock in the afternoon, um, it, it's time to go for a walk or I'm a cyclist. So, you know, go for a ride because 
at times, especially in the environment that we're in right now, we move from meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting on our calendars because we're all remote now. And so if one meeting didn't go quite as well as you had hoped it had, you need that time to clear your head in order to be productive in the next meeting and not carry the balance of that to the next meeting. And I think we get caught up in checking the box, okay, I have the meeting from one to two, two to three, three to four, whatever the, the schedule looks like and showing up to that. It doesn't always work that way. And sometimes you know yourself when you've just had too much and you have to be able to raise your hand and say, I need to step away. And so I always listen to myself and I always listen to you know, what my body says and, and do my best to try to step away and, and balance that. And, and, and it doesn't I won't lie to you. I'm not perfect at it. Um, but I, I also make sure that, you know, when my team is away, I don't bother them. I don't, I don't work and, and work around the clock. I'm respectful of the clock and the time. Um, I'm respectful of the hours that they put in. And I try not to, to push them in the times that uh, is their time. And again, I'm not going to say that happens all the time because there are situations that we run into where we do have to work more. But I, I do make a conscious effort of uh, the impact of, of my behavior on the rest of the team and making sure that I lead that example so that that trickles through the organization. We just have a, a now a rapid fire round, if you like, uh, that is a regular feature on the show. Um, so if it's okay, I will ask you uh, five questions here. Um, and if you could just respond as quickly as possible. Absolutely. Um, so uh, complete this sentence. The qualities I look for in my next exceptional hire are? Dedication and creativity. Thank you. I often say, and I think we've touched on it here, that the, the only problems that worry me are the ones that I can't see. So I, I try to be really open with my team about the challenges that I have and any mistakes that I've made um, in the hope that that creates a space for them to feel comfortable doing the same. So in the spirit of transparency, what's the mistake that you've made in the past couple of weeks? I would say um, probably communication. Um, I think we get wrapped up in things a lot that... Um, sometimes we don't communicate enough. And, and what's something that most people get wrong about you? I think some people mistake my directness um, for a lack of listening. And, and, and that's actually not the case. Um, and finally, and I realize this is only four questions because you've actually answered one of the earlier questions around what you did to switch off. So finally, what's one piece of advice or one idea, either about marketing or about life in general, that you keep coming back to? Push yourself. Make sure that you're not just doing things in a space that's comfortable. Push yourself to the point where you're uncomfortable, and that's where your best work will happen. Brian Rowley, thank you very much for being with us today. I absolutely love that conversation. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Great discussion. How to Grow a CMO is a production of the CMO Crowd, brought to you by The Marketing Practice. Make sure you never miss an episode by joining the cmocrowd.com slash podcasts for exclusive member-only content, including events, videos, reports, and more, exclusive to the CMO Crowd. My name is Ali Hussain. You've been listening to How to Grow a CMO by the CMO Crowd.